Chapter 12 of Gold in the Sky by Alan E. Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sinister Bonanza. They were taken into a small, drab internment room. A half hour passed and still no word from the Major. From the moment the patrol crew had boarded them, everything had seemed like a bad dream. The shock of the arrest, the realization that the cabinet had been serious when he reeled off the charges lodged against them. They had been certain it was some kind of ill-planned joke until they saw the delegation of Jupiter equilateral officials waiting at the port to greet Merrill Tawney, like a man returned from the dead. They had watched Tawney climb into the sleek company car and drive off toward the gate, while the captain had escorted them without a word down to the internment rooms. The door clicked and the captain looked in. "'All right, come along now,' he said. "'Is the major here?' Tom said. "'You'll see the major soon enough.' The captain herded them into another room, where a clerk efficiently fingerprinted them. Then they went down a ramp to a jitney platform and boarded a U.N. official car. The trip into the city was slow. Rush-hour traffic from the port was heavy. When they reached the U.N. headquarters, there was another wait in an upper-level anteroom. The captain stood stiffly with his hands behind his back and ignored them. "'Look, this is ridiculous,' Greg burst out finally. "'We haven't done anything. You haven't even let us make a statement. "'Make your statements to the Major. It's his headache, not mine, I'm happy to say. "'But you let that man walk out of here scot-free.' The captain looked at him. If I were you, he said, I'd stop complaining and start worrying. If I had Jupiter Equilateral at my throat, I'd worry plenty, because once they start, they don't stop. A signal light blinked and he took them downstairs. Major Briarton was behind his desk, his eyes tired, his face grim. He dismissed the captain and motioned them to seats. All right, let's have the story, he said, and by the ten moons of Saturn, it had better be convincing because I've about had my fill of you three. He listened without interruption as Tom told the story, with Greg and Johnny adding details from time to time. Tom told him everything, from the moment they had blasted off for Roger Hunter's claim to the moment the patrol ship had boarded them, except for a single detail. He didn't mention the remarkable gun from Roger Hunter's gun case. The gun was still in the spacer's pack he had slung over his shoulder. He had not mentioned it when the patrolmen had taken their stunners away. Now as he talked, he felt a twinge of guilt in not mentioning it. But he had a reason. Dad had died to keep that gun secret. It seemed only right to keep the secret a little longer. When he came to the part about their weapons, he simply spoke of Dad's gun and omitted any details. And through the story, the Major listened intently, interrupting only occasionally, pulling at his lip and scowling. So we decided that the best way to convince you that we had the evidence you wanted was to bring Towney back with us, Tom concluded. A brilliant maneuver, the Major said dryly, a real stroke of genius. But when the patrol ship intercepted us and told us we were under arrest, and when we landed, they let Towney drive off without even questioning him. The least we could do under the circumstances, the Major said. Well, I'd like to know why, Greg broke in bitterly. Why pick on us? We've been telling you. Yes, yes, I heard every word of it, 
the major sighed. "'If you knew the trouble. "'Oh, what's the use? "'I've spent the last three solid hours talking myself hoarse, "'throwing every bit of authority I could muster "'and jeopardizing my position as coordinator here "'for the sole purpose of keeping you three idiots out of jail for a few hours.' "'Jail? "'That's what I said. "'The brig. "'The place they put people when they don't behave.' You three are sitting on a nice, big powder keg right now, and when it blows, I don't know how much of you is going to be left. Do you think we're lying? Greg said. Do you know what you're charged with? The Major snapped back. Some sort of nonsense about piracy. Plus kidnapping, plus murder, to say nothing of totally disabling a $17 million orbit ship and placing the lives of 400 crewmen in jeopardy. The Major picked up a sheet of paper from his desk. According to Merrill Towney's statement, the three of you hijacked a company scout ship that chanced to be scouting in the vicinity of your father's claim. Your attack was unprovoked and violent. Everybody on Mars knows you were convinced that Jupiter Equilateral was responsible for your father's death. He looked up. In the absence of any evidence, I might add, although I did my best to tell you that. He rattled the report sheet. All right. You took the scout ship by force, with the pilot at gunpoint, and made him home in on his orbit ship. Then you proceeded to reduce that orbit ship into a leaking wreck, although Towney tried to reason with you and even offered you amnesty if you would desist. By the time the crew stopped shooting each other in the dark, fifteen of them subsequently expired, it says here. You had stolen another scout ship and kidnapped Towney for the purpose of extorting a confession out of Jupiter Equilateral, threatening him with torture if he did not comply. The Major dropped the paper to the desk. Johnny Coombs picked it up, looked at it owlishly, and put it back again. Pretty large operation for three men, Major, he said. The Major shrugged. You were armed. That orbit ship was registered as a commercial vessel, it had no reason to expect a surprise attack, and had no way to defend itself. They were armed to the teeth, Greg said disgustedly. Why don't you send somebody out to look? Oh, I could, but why waste the time and fuel? There wouldn't be any weapons aboard. Then how do they explain the fact that the scavenger was blown to bits, and Dad's orbit ship ripped apart from top to bottom? Details, the Major said. Mere details. I'm sure that the company's lawyers can muddy the waters quite enough so that little details like that are overlooked, particularly with a sympathetic jury and a judge that plays along. He stood up and ran his hand through his hair. All right, granted I'm painting the worst picture possible, but I'm afraid that's the way it's going to be. I believe your story, don't worry about that. I know why you went out there to the belt and I can't really blame you, I suppose. But you were asking for trouble, and that's what you got. Frankly, I'm amazed that you ever returned to Mars, and how you managed to make rubble of an orbit ship with a crew of 400 men trying to stop you is more than I can comprehend. But you did it. All right, fine. You were justified. They attacked you, held you prisoner, threatened you. Fine. They'd have cut your throats in another few hours, perhaps. Fine. I believe you, but there's one big question that you can't answer, and unless you can, no court in the solar system will listen to you. What question? Tom said. 
The question of motives, the major replied. You had plenty of motive for doing what Towney says you did. But what motive did Jupiter Equilateral have, if your story is true? They wanted to get what Dad found, out in the belt. Ah, yes, that mysterious bonanza that Roger Hunter found. I was afraid that was what you'd say. And it's the reason that Jupiter Equilateral is going to win this fight, and you're going to lose it. I don't think I understand, Tom said slowly. I mean that I'm going to have to testify against you, the Major said, because your father didn't find a thing in the asteroid belt, and I happen to know it. It's been a war, the Major said later, a dirty, vicious war with no holds barred and no quarter given. Not a shooting war, of course, nothing out in the open, but a war just the same, with the highest stakes of any war in history. It didn't look like a war at first, the Major went on, Back when the colonies were being built, nobody really believed that anything of value could come of them. Scientific outposts, perhaps. Places for laboratories and observatories, not much more. The colonies were placed under United Nations control. Nobody argued about it. And then things began to change. There was wealth out here, and opportunities for power. With the overpopulation at home, Earth was looking more and more to Mars and Venus for a place to move, not tiny colonies, but places for millions of people. And as Mars grew, Jupiter Equilateral grew. But it wasn't just a mining company, Tom said. At first it was, but then its interests began to expand. The company accumulated wealth, unbelievable wealth, and it developed many friends. Very soon it had friends back on Earth fighting for it, and the United Nations found itself fighting to stay on Mars. I don't see why, Tom said. The company already has half the mining claims in the belt. They aren't interested in mining, the Major said. They have a much longer-range goal than that. The men behind Jupiter Equilateral are looking ahead. They know that someday Earthmen are going to have to go to the stars for colonies. It won't be a matter of a choice after a while. They'll have to go. Well, Jupiter Equilateral's terms are very simple. They're perfectly willing to let the United Nations control things on Earth. All they want is to control everything else. Mars, if they can drive us out. Venus, too, if it ever proves up for colonies. And if they can gain control of the ships that leave our solar system for the stars... They can build an empire, and they know it. They were silent for a moment. Then Johnny Coombs said, Doesn't anybody on Earth know about this? There are some who know, but they don't see the danger. They think of Jupiter Equilateral as just another big company. So far, the UN control of Mars and Venus has held up, even though the pressure on the legislators back on Earth has been getting heavier and heavier. Jupiter Equilateral won the greatest fight in its history when they limited UN jurisdiction to Mars and kept us out of the belt. And now they hope to convince the lawmakers that were incompetent to administer the Martian colonies and keep peace out here. If they succeed, we'll be called home in nothing flat. We've had to fight just to stay. The Major spread his hands helplessly. Like I said, it's been a war. Our only hope was to prove that the company was using piracy and murder to gain control of the asteroids. 
We had to find a way to smash the picture they've been painting of themselves back on Earth as a big, benevolent organization, interested only in the best for Earth colonists on the planets. We had to expose them before they had the Earth in chains. Not now, maybe not even a century from now, but sometime, years from now, when the breakthrough to the stars comes and Earthmen discover that if they want to leave Earth, they have to pay a toll. They could never do that, Greg protested. They're doing it, son, and they're winning. We have been searching desperately for a way to fight back, and that was where your father came in. He could see the handwriting. He knew what was happening. That was why he broke with the company and tried to organize a competing force before it was too late. And it was why he died in the belt. He knew I couldn't send an agent out there without unquestionable evidence of a major crime of some sort or another. But a private citizen could go out there, and if he happened to be working with the U.N. hand in glove, nobody could do anything about it. Then Dad was a U.N. agent? Oh, not officially. There's not a word in the records. If I were forced to testify under oath, I would have to deny any connection. But unofficially, he went out there to lay a trap. The Major told them then. It had been an incredible risk that Roger Hunter had taken, but the decision had been his. The plan was simple. To involve Jupiter Equilateral in a case of claim jumping and piracy that would hold up in court, pressed by a man who would not be intimidated and could not be bought out. Roger Hunter had made a trip to the belt and come back with stories, very carefully planted in just the right ears, of a fabulous strike. He knew that Jupiter Equilateral had jumped a hundred rich claims in the past, forcing the independent miners to agree, frightening them into silence or disposing of them with accidents. But this was one claim they were not going to jump. The UN cooperated helping him spread the story of his big strike until they were certain that Jupiter Equilateral would go for the bait. Roger Hunter had returned to the belt, with a U.N. patrol ship close by in case he needed help. We thought it would be enough, the Major said unhappily. We were wrong, of course. At first nothing happened. Not a sign of a company ship. Nothing. Your father contacted me finally. He was ready to give up. Somehow they must have learned that it was a trap. But they had just been careful was all. They waited until our guard was down, and then moved in fast and hit hard. He sank down in his seat behind the desk, regarding the hunter twins sadly. You know the rest. Perhaps you can see now why I tried to keep you from going out there. There was no proof to uncover, and no bonanza load for you to find. There never was a bonanza load. The twins looked at each other, and then at the major. Why didn't you tell us? Greg said. Would you have listened? Would telling you have kept you from going out there? There was no point in telling you. I knew you would have to find out for yourselves, however painfully. But what I'm telling you now is the truth. As far as it goes, Tom Hunter said. But if this is really the truth, there's one thing that doesn't fit into the picture. Slowly, Tom pulled the gun case from his pack and set it down on the major's desk. It doesn't explain what Dad was doing with this. End of chapter 12